Now, I want you to take your Bible, your copy of the Scripture, whatever form that's in, and I want you to find, if you would please, Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32. And it's where we started reading last week. We're going to come back up and start there again. Part two, and this isn't intended to be an exhaustive series on the subject, but for our purposes, part two on this subject. The limitless love of God. The shocking mercy of God. Love without limits. The shocking mercy of God. Now, that we've got two approaches to that. The Lord is shocking in his mercy when he deals with people who ought to know better. Have I got a witness? Amen, preacher. Shocking in his kindness. Shocking in his ability to let us up. Shocking in his ability to bring in something fresh and new that lifts our spirits and helps us to realize we're not over and done with. There is a future and a hope for my life. That's, that's what we talked about last week. That when, when we ought to know better and we go on and do it anyway, and then we find that the Lord in his mercy meets us. Now today we're going to spend a little bit of time not on the ones who should have known better, but on ones who don't know any better. Nebuchadnezzar is case in point there. Now I want to throw out two or three other contemporary names in the news just so you won't feel like we're going to just get lost in 586 B.C. Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin, the Ayatollah Khomeini. You see, the leader in North Korea was raised by his father, who was raised by his father, in a similar kind of background that Vladimir Putin has been raised in, and that is a, the attempt to create and to encourage among the people the sense of a godless society, a godless existence. The Ten Commandments don't matter, they're irrelevant. The God of Moses is not necessarily um, important for the leader of North Korea or the leader of Russia or the leader of Iran to have to worry with. It, it, it's, as if, it's as if the things that have created for us, I say us in this room with something of a Christian background or an upbringing in a Christian environment, there, there is a moral compass that goes along with that. There is the, there is the conscience of man, the, the, the conscience of women, 
But that can be amazingly dulled and numbed, and in some ways it's almost as if it doesn't even exist. When layer upon layer upon layer, God doesn't exist, those things that are thought of as morally significant in the Western world, they don't apply to this world. It's all about power. And if you are, if you are in the position of absolute authority, you make your own rules. That, that truth is relative. It, there, there are no absolutes. It's just, it's just what you think and feel is best for you and your position at the time. Nebuchadnezzar. 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 In the man's name is the name of a god, Nebo. His name literally means, or Nabu, excuse me, his name literally means, this is the translation of that long word Nebuchadnezzar, the king. Oh, God, Nabu, preserve, defend my firstborn son. I mean, that's his name. So every time anybody called him to supper, anytime anybody called him by his name, they were calling the name of a pagan god, a false god, maybe demonically empowered or driven god, Nebuchadnezzar. His father was a king who, following the, the death of the Assyrian king who was in place and, and a, a world in that part, in that day, a, a season of the world ruled by him. When he passed away, then Nebuchadnezzar's father stepped in, amassed around him enough of a following to establish a kingdom in Babylon. His father ruled for 25 years. And then Nebuchadnezzar II ascended his father's throne. He was raised in an absolutely pagan environment. That they would have a God for every day of the week and sometimes two or three. That there was, there was the, um, a part of the rituals of their worship, all kinds of things, all kinds of sacrifices, all kinds of, of activities and involvements that just would have no sense of moral decency. You, you, you couldn't necessarily accuse a king of a criminal act of killing because the king could make his own rules. The king could establish who his enemies were and take out his enemies just because he was the king. And they say, well, what in the world does Nebuchadnezzar have to do with anything? Here's what Nebuchadnezzar has to do with everything. He was the only king in the history of Israel up until 586 B.C., who was allowed to enter, to breach, and enter the walls of Jerusalem and ultimately to destroy Jerusalem, to plunder the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was positioned, to destroy the outer and the inner courts, the holy place and the most holy place where God had said, I will meet you, Moses, between the wings of the cherubim, the, the, the golden covering the top of the, of, the, of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. In that glow, in that place, only in that place on the face of the earth 
where God had said, I will meet face to face with man. One day out of the year on the Day of Atonement in a room where there were no candelabras, there were no lamps of any kind, the only light in the room was the Shekinah glory of God that the high priest was able to see, move for, offer the sacrifice. They'd tie a rope onto his leg to pull him back out if he entered that place with sin in his life because it was such a holy place sin could not stand. And yet, as the years passed, as the generations went by, the people of Israel drifted and methodically drifted away from the singular worship of the one true and living God who had brought them out of Egypt and had established them in the land and delivered them from their enemies and given them property and given them prosperity of every kind, but their hearts turned away from the Lord and started attaching to things to the gods of the peoples around them. Progressively, progressively, they went farther and farther and farther and farther away to the point finally where the God who had fashioned them as his own people, who had rescued them, had given them everything that they had, the God who loved them deeply, passionately, extensively for all of their existence, that one true and living God had to, he was forced to. It wasn't his, his, his automatic reflex. It wasn't his go-to position. He was forced to lift his protection off of his people, lift his covering off of his people. And the enemies of God's people chomping at the bits all along, they wanted to devour Jerusalem because it was known as the crown jewel of the earth. It was, it was not only beautiful in many ways, but it was, it was full of wealth and, 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 and the people were blessed and it was, it was jealously desired by surrounding enemy nations. And the Lord lifted his protection and the enemies began to converge on Jerusalem, led by Nebuchadnezzar. Nabu, oh, oh, Nabu, preserve, protect my firstborn son, a king who is named after a pagan god is allowed to destroy the city of the great king, one of the names for Jerusalem, is allowed to pillage the temple, is allowed to not only, as a part of the battle, kill many of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, but to capture hundreds, if not thousands, and take them away from their homes, their lands, their possessions, and move them to a completely foreign environment, to Babylon, where they would be re-educated and trained in the culture of Babylon and would become, since they had no city to go back to, no homeland to go back to, as proof that Babylon's gods were the strongest gods on the face of the earth, these ones, and in particular the Jewish people, were forced to live in a setting under the rulership of ones who were following and obeying 
pagan gods. The Jews said, we have one true and living God. But, but now, since their God was not able to protect them in Jerusalem and they're held captive, they were living proof to Nebuchadnezzar and those that our gods are more powerful than your God. Now, I want you to follow me and just let me read down through Jeremiah chapter 32, a little bit of this. Verse 26, as the Lord is speaking back to Jeremiah, who would be the prophet to endure this season of great moral decline and the rise and fall of a number of, 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 of Jewish kings and ultimately was still alive when the destruction of Jerusalem came. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, this is verse 26, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Now, I want you as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, as one who this morning you're desiring to seek, to worship, to trust with your life. I want you to read this back out loud with me, verse 27. Out loud, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Let that into your soul today. No matter where you are, what you're facing, what you're going through, the Lord says to you, I am the Lord. I'm the God over all flesh. You can't come up with a name of somebody who has a flesh and blood body whom I am not over and who is not ultimately answerable to me. I am the Lord. I am the God of all flesh. And then the statement, is there anything too hard for me, too difficult for me? Is there anything that taxes me? Is there anything that exhausts me? Is there anything that goes beyond my ability? There is nothing that is too hard for me. Now, sometimes, folks, on a Monday morning, you got to talk to yourself. And you turn the radio on or the TV on, and they're going to be telling you one thing, but it can just have the consummate effect of, 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 of depleting you, of, of, of leaving you start out your day worn out. Well, the world's coming loose. I don't know what to do next. I don't know who to trust. The Lord would just say, start with me, will you? Start with me. Start with me. And I'm the one saying to you at 7 o'clock, 6.30 on Monday morning, listen to me. Is there anything too hard for me? So turn it over to me. Give it to me. Trust me. There's nothing too big. There's nothing too little. There's nothing that's got too many pieces. There's nothing too hard for me. All right, so that's where he, the Lord starts with Jeremiah. And then he continues, verse 28, Therefore, thus says the Lord, on the basis of nothing is too difficult for me, behold, I'm about to give this city, Jerusalem, into the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. God calls Nebuchadnezzar by name assigns him a task, and promises a result. Though he's as pagan, though he's as 
morally absent of direction and focus that would be pleasing to the Lord. But when you look further at his life, as I tried to point out earlier, he didn't know Abraham. He had never heard of Moses. He didn't know about any Ten Commandments. He wasn't aware of minor prophets, major prophets. He he hadn't heard the thou shalt, some of the thou shalt nots. He had been raised in an environment that only taught him how to do, how to think, how to be in exactly the way that he was. So he was responding authentically to what he knew. He becomes king. There's an opportunity to to take Jerusalem because it's in a weakened state. Why not muster the armies and march on Jerusalem? He didn't have the clue that at the same time as that was working in him, the God of the Jews, the God of Israel, was knowing that disciplined, a measure of punishment was going to have to come upon his own people in order for them to be broken out of this, 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 this death cycle that they were engaged in because of their choices. It was the mercy of God, as strange as it may seem, it was the mercy of God that lifted the protection so that this pagan godless king could do what he would do to Jerusalem so that the people would realize there is a God in heaven. What he has said to us matters. How we live before him, he sees that he has the ability to bless, but he also has the ability to withhold or even to punish. If God had allowed them to continue to go that way without any consequence of their choices, they never, more than likely, would have changed. But because God loved them just like he loves us so much that he won't leave us alone when we head in a direction that not only breaks his heart, but he knows if we stay there, it's going to break us too. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God, hallelujah, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You can, we can stay with that or we can choose the life that is in Jesus. But isn't it true? And, and you know, as I asked last week, how many of this is telling your story? And about two-thirds of the room stood up in both services that I knew better. But I did it anyway. I knew it was wrong, but I did it anyway. But, but even then, when I came to my senses, when, when, when it dropped 18 inches that what I was doing was wrong, and it's not only hurting the Lord, but it's, but it's killing me and affecting those that I love. I turned back to him and the Lord met me. He met me in his mercy. It, it was, I, I didn't get what I deserved. He, he shocked me with his mercy. I didn't get everything I deserved. He forgave me and he's restoring me. He's loving me. 
that being true for those who knew better, knew better. But what about ones who don't know better? What about ones, what about the Nebuchadnezzars? Now, they, you may have somebody in, in your concentric circles of relationships, and their last name or first name is Nebuchadnezzar, and they're not from Babylon. They're from Bear County. I mean, they grew up on your side of town. They went to school, whatever it would be. But for whatever reason, it, it, it's as if they don't have a clue about what's right or about what's wrong. Maybe it's because the examples like would have been the case with Nebuchadnezzar and his father, like would be the case with Kim Jong-un and his father, and the case of, of, of Putin and his family growing up in atheistic Russia under the influence of Lenin and Karl Marx's philosophy, all of that that's godless, that, that, that religion is the opiate of the people. So what's your option? A life without God a spurning and a mocking and a laughing down, anything and everything that has to do with the one true and living God. Because religion, Christianity, is a sign of weakness instead of strength. If you've had layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of that put upon your life and your thinking and your processing of situations since the time you could breathe, it's not inconceivable to think that a child could grow into an adult without a reliable moral compass, without a sense of what is truly right and what's wrong, and can behave and conduct themselves according to those mores and rules. What about them? What about, I'm just going to tell you, Nebuchadnezzar, is the example that just crawls up, climbs up on the back of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Jonah and Micah and all, all the Old Testament and just shouts, for God so loved the world that he would one day give his only begotten son. Calvary hadn't happened in Jeremiah 32, but Calvary would happen because the God who would come and give himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, that God was still alive and loving and operating in the world even before there was a Mount Calvary. I'm about to give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he shall take it. And the Chaldeans, verse 29, who are fighting against this city shall enter and set the city on fire and burn it with the houses where people offered incense to Baal on their roofs and poured out libations to other gods to provoke me to anger. Spiritual adultery, spiritual adultery, spiritual adultery is what it was likened to. For those who knew the Lord, knew of God's covenant relationship with them, but for them also to start dating other people, dating other gods, being open to other gods. You shall have one Lord, one God. You shall have no other gods before me. One of the big ten, remember. But that repeatedly was broken. It, it wasn't that they totally gave up on the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
They just wanted to make sure they weren't missing anything, so they started dating everybody else around and put shrines to pagan gods, to the gods of the surrounding neighborhood, in the temple, in the temple itself. The Lord put up with it, and he put up with it, and he put up with it some more until the day finally came that the truth that Paul writes about in Galatians 5, God will not be mocked. Whatever a man or a woman sows, that's what you're going to reap. You sow things that honor the Lord. and we, we learn this. We, we get this over time. Sometimes, you know, we're thick-headed and we're, we're stubborn and it takes a while for, for us to really understand. But it's true. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. You, you got a bad harvest coming in. You got something coming in that's uncomfortable, something coming back that you don't like, something coming back that, that is uneasy. Check the seed before you check the harvest. We notice the harvest, but what am I planting? I'm getting back what I sow some way, somehow. God is not my. That's how, how that works. So the people were suffering as a result of the harvest that they had sown. Skip down to verse 33, 29, excuse me, Jeremiah 32, 33. The Lord says about his people, and they have turned their back to me and not their face. Though I taught them, teaching again and again, they would not listen and receive instruction. They turn their back to me and not their face. But the Lord will go on to say that these ones who have turned their back to me and not their face, if they will just pivot, if they'll just plant their foot and turn this way to seek my face again, I don't want to punish. I don't want to deprive. I don't want to lift my protection. You're forcing me to do it. If you continue to go the way that is opposite my heart, turn back and let me see your face. They'd have given me the back. Let me see your face. Let me see your face. How many, how many family members missing other family members just said, it's not, a good, not enough to get a letter from you. Thank you for the emails and the texts. But I want to see your face. I want to see your face. Folks, listen. Don't know where any of us may be today, but that's still the cry of the Lord. You've turned your back to me. Let me see your face. It won't be for destroying you. It won't be for crushing you. It won't be for depriving you. It will be for restoring you. Let me see your face. So he said, I, I sent the prophets again and again, and they, they preached and they taught, but you wouldn't listen. But even at that, when you go on down, look at verse 36. The Lord knows there will be a time when they will return, when their hearts will return. Now, therefore, 
Thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I have driven them in my anger and my wrath and my great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. And then we reference that section in Jeremiah chapter 29, the Lord speaking to the ones who had rebelled, to the ones who had, who had gone so far away that it had cost the protection and the blessing of the Lord to be lifted off of them. But it was to those, it was to the exiles, to the ones who were having to live through the bad harvest of their planting. Jeremiah 29, verse 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart and I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. The shocking Mercy of God. Love without limits. That's the ones, those are the ones who should have known. But back again, what about Nebuchadnezzar? Well, go on, Pastor. You've been baiting us for two weeks. What is it about Nebuchadnezzar? Well, I appreciate you encouraging me to step on into this. So if you would, find the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. And Daniel chapter Daniel has been taken. He's been one of, the, one of the ones along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his three friends, the four of them mentioned in the early chapters of Daniel. They, they were not necessarily young men who had forsaken the God of their fathers. They were not necessarily young men who who had turned their way from the uh, turned away from the Lord? They they were they were young men who were seeking the Lord, but they were caught up in the judgment. They, they were caught up in in what happened to Israel, and they were among those who were taken away into Babylon. But in that place, in 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 that in that place, that strange, foreign place. God elevated Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego to places of prominence and the usage of their gifts and the opportunity to serve God in ways that, that they never would have had if they'd stayed in Jerusalem. God used the disaster as a means of promoting Daniel and those three young men into places of extraordinary international prominence. And we hear about them all these centuries later. So Shadrach, or excuse me, Daniel, Daniel is, 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 in, the, is in the group of ones called wise men. 
And Daniel has come to be known as one who is able to interpret dreams. About the time we get to thinking that somebody is untouchable, that Putin's untouchable, that Kim Jong-un is untouchable, that the Ayatollah is beyond reach, you just need to come and read the book of Daniel and the story of Nebuchadnezzar and just realize there isn't anybody anywhere on the planet with any level of income, with any level of political prominence, with any geographic location or nation around the world who is beyond the reach of a God who has designs on their heart. It's striking, however, that the Lord would still even care anything at all about Nebuchadnezzar after what he did to Jerusalem, after what he did to people, innocent as well as many who would have been guilty. Why would he even care? Why would it even matter to God that Nebuchadnezzar would know him? Well, there's a strange section in the book of Daniel where in the first person, Nebuchadnezzar is telling his story. Um, it's not Daniel writing for Nebuchadnezzar. It's just recorded in Daniel's, the book attributed to Daniel, Daniel's name. But, but note, notice this. Evidently, something happens to Nebuchadnezzar, and as a result of that, he wants to get it written down, and it appears in this book. Verse 4, Daniel 4, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Now, he had guards at the door. He had gazillions in the bank. He had a city that called him king. He had built the hanging gardens for his beloved wife. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, a dream makes its way into the bedchamber of the king and into the soul and the mind of the king. Where'd this dream come from? It came from the God that Nebuchadnezzar had no clue of in many senses of the word. This, the visions kept alarming me, so I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream, the magicians and the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and so no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen, along with its interpretation. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth. And its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, Nebuchadnezzar continues. And its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. 
Its foliage was beautiful. Its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the sky dwelt in its branches. And all the living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. And behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows. Chop down the tree, cut off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him, the stump, be drenched with the dew of heaven. And let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time, seven years, pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones. Nebuchadnezzar continues to relate all of this. In order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it, the ability to rule over mankind, bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the rulership of mankind, sets, establishes, makes firm over the rulership of mankind, who? The lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, Daniel, Tell me its interpretation. Inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known the interpretation. But you are able for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. And the king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries, the tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and which was food for all, so forth. Verse 22, it is you, O king. For you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you, seven years, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. And He bestows it on whomever He chooses, and in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. What a line. After you recognize 
that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins and doing by doing righteousness and, and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be prolonging of your prosperity. Verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great? which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and the glory of my majesty. As you may be well aware, the, the first in chronicle order of the, the wonders of the ancient world was the hanging gardens of Babylon built by Nebuchadnezzar II for his queen because she was from a mountainous country and he wanted her not to feel so not at home in, in her, her new homeland. And so trees and all kinds of things built in a pyramid, an amazing thing, one of the ancient wonders of the world. Verse 31, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. And he bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. The psychological disorder known as boanthropy, Nebuchadnezzar perhaps being the most famous victim of that condition, believes, male or female, believes that he or she is now a cow or an ox, and they may well be found down on all fours chewing grass. It, it, it's a literal condition, Nebuchadnezzar being the poster child for that condition, boanthropy. It can happen. It happened to him. Look at verse 34. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyebrows toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Verse 35, he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and my splendor were restored to me 
for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways just and he is able to humble those who are proud. The shocking mercy of God. Love without limits. Until Nebuchadnezzar was broken. Until Nebuchadnezzar was humbled. He was living in a phony world. He was living in a place that had not significant truth in it. And it took boanthropy. Literally, his mind being taken from him. Physically, he may have been protected from arrows or from stones at that time hitting him. But no one could protect his mind. Nobody today can protect their own minds. You can't build a wall thick enough. You can't have security in place enough. If God says, I've got a better place for you to live, Nebuchadnezzar, than in the blindness of your world thinking you're a self-made man and it's all due to you and all praise and glory needs to go to you and you're above everything else. You don't need any standards. Watch this. And in a moment, his mind was gone. His mind was gone. The, the, the God after whom he was named was the God of science in that day, the God of wisdom in that day. But the God of all creation has the ability to prove the impotence of every other human man-made God. And it doesn't take him a long time. This was overnight, and the man lost his mind. Only for it to be given back to him when, as he said, I lifted my eyes up and I saw the truth. But I'm not a, I'm not a man who made myself. I have what I have because God gave me the ability to do what I do. He opens the doors. He closes the doors. My credit all belongs to him. And once that was established, then the Lord began the work of restoring him. So for seven years, it's as if his administration was in limbo. They hit pause. But then all of a sudden, the end of seven years that coincided with his humble heart being turned toward heaven his counselors, his advisors began to find him. Where is he? Well, last time I saw him, he's eating out there with that little bunch of steers, and they were headed southeast. I don't know where he is now. But they found him. He was restored. And he lived for several more years. Died when he was 
71, 72. Destruction of Jerusalem probably took place when he was in his late 40s. The shocking mercy of God. You, you know, you get to think, well, about when he's out there, he got that, when he's got that boanthropy, he's, he's got capital B for boanthropy. He's out there, well, that, that's what he deserves. <laughs> he ought to lose his mind for what he did to Jerusalem. He, he ought to be having, he ought to have everything stripped from him because of all the pain he caused to countless people. We could be, mm-hmm, yeah, go God, go God, that's right. But then, when he gets his mind back and he makes these amazing declarations <laughs> of the one true and living God and his profession of, of looking to him. No, wait, I'm not, I don't know we'll see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. I, he, he didn't become, you know, he didn't become a, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, I guarantee you that. He had a bunch of dots that we're not sure how all those got connected. But from within him, there was the sense of realization that now I understand. I have what I have because it came from God, not because I'm such a hot rock. I understand now who I am accountable to. And evidently, he chose to live the rest of his life. That statement, and the Lord sets over those who rule mankind, he sets over them the lowliest of men. You talk about low, lowliest of men, hair long, fingernails like claws, sleeping outside so the dew is on him, eating grass like livestock. And for the Lord to take somebody like that, give them their mind back and reestablish them in the place of authority and promise and international recognition, Shocking is the mercy of God. I don't care if any one of you says amen to that. It's just shocking. After all that he did, in his name is the name of a foreign God. And God allowed that man, that man to be the agent of destruction of Jerusalem. But that wasn't all he had in mind for Nebuchadnezzar to be involved with or to become. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride, was Nebuchadnezzar's statement. Here's an amazing kingdom truth and one we ought to hang on to with both hands. Humility calls to mercy in language mercy understands. Working through relationships with people, relationships in marriage, relationships in business, relationship in friendships. When there is a genuine sense of humility, automatically, automatically it is easier for one who has been offended, one who has reason to be affected for that one to find something strange and unexpected maybe rising up in his or her heart and it's that thing called mercy and compassion but as long as you feel like somebody 
stomp their feet, jaw is set, bow their neck, just, you know, and anytime some of you, they're just ready to fight, then you're, it's amazing how mercy, it's there, it's there, but it, it's way down deep. And it can be nothing, something no more than just the look in a man's eye. It's the sound in her voice. that lets you know the offended one. Something very important has changed. And oh God, let it stay there. I'm not ready, I'm not wanting to punish or to, or to, to judge or to, to crush, but I just don't want to be hurt all over again. And I don't want the same junk. But when I see mercy, when I, when I see humility, and I feel like it, Lord. I feel like there's something going on there. And help my response to be what you want my response to be. You find something that you hadn't expected. You start feeling sorry for them. You start feeling as if something might be put back together here. I don't know if you've ever been down that road. You live long enough, and I just almost guarantee you, in one setting or another, you're going to find yourself in a situation like that. The, the, door, the doorway to mercy is the doorway of humility. And folks, it's, it's a low door. <laughs> you, you can't ride through that door riding high and talking loud. Nebuchadnezzar. First thing he said when I lifted my eyes up. That was before anything else was restored. That was before anything else with regard to his mind, his ability to think. He, but humbled before the God of all creation. So we, we hang on to this. We hang on to this. It's not because he doesn't love us that he allows some things to bruise us. He allows some harvest to come back in upon us. It is because he loves us that he allows those things. It is because he loves us that he doesn't want us to stay in that place. So he has the ability to make us sick and tired of that place, doesn't he? Lord, I got here by myself. I got here by myself, Lord. That's what humility reveals the truth about it wasn't this one, it wasn't that one, it wasn't somebody else, it wasn't. I got here by myself. Lord, forgive me. And I'm looking to you. I'm looking to you. Would you bow your heads with me, please, as we close? Don't know, don't know if you feel like you're, you're a Nebuchadnezzar that there were some things you just didn't know and you just went bullheaded along until all of a sudden you realized that how wrong it was and how far away from truth it was. But listen, there is mercy with the Lord. Whether it's Nebuchadnezzar or whether it's someone who has known, known what to do but just hadn't done it, just didn't do it, there is mercy with the Lord. And you cry out to him.
And you look to him. Give him your face and not your back. And you watch what he'll do. Lord, I thank you for opening our eyes, many of us, by way of the circumstances that we have to walk through to the truth of this. Lord, I pray that you'd give to us great compassion for the ones who may not know the difference, who may not know the difference. We pray for their soul. Lord, I just pray for Kim Jong-un's soul today. Pray for Vladimir Putin's soul today. Pray for the Ayatollah's soul today. Lord, if it's a dream, if it's some unusual means that only you are able to supply and provide, we ask you. We ask you to do what it takes. And in our lives, Lord, to guide us in the truth and to keep us close to you. In Jesus' name. And all the people said, Amen. <laughs> Amen. Amen.